of the millions of Americans who believes the Constitution is protecting our freedoms? Well, if you've ever been seriously ill or relied on certain foods like raw milk or organic non-GMO foods for your recovery, you've quickly found out that the government doesn't have your back and, in fact, is working overtime to outlaw these very foods. That's why the guest heretic today is Peter Kennedy, an attorney for the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund. He has dedicated his work to protecting both family farms and consumers who want to eat the life-affirming foods that they provide. Listen in as Peter describes the outrageous cases in which he's had to defend small farmers, how the government protects corporate food operations from responsibility, and what the FDA thinks about your right to consume healthy food. Coming up next. Meet Gina. Gina wanted to lose weight, so she spent two years fasting, detoxing, and dabbling with vegan diets while practicing a shit ton of yoga to lose 25 pounds, but it took so long that nobody noticed. Then, Gina started Frenching her food by eating fatty cheeses, butter, sausages, and red meat, and lost 15 more pounds in only two months. Everybody noticed this time. Frenching your food unlocks the riddle of weight loss that skinny French chicks use to slim down, look young, and live longer despite doing everything wrong. Be like Gina. Start Frenching your food today by visiting nutritionheretic.com forward slash Frenching. Fat is bad for you. I just pop a pill and I'm fine. Meat is murder. <laughs> it's time for bad food punishment. It's time for real nourishment. It's time for the nutrition heretic. The following program is provided as information only and may not be construed as medical or health advice. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any disease. No action or inaction should be taken solely on the basis of the information provided here. Please consult with a licensed healthcare professional or doctor on any matter relating to your health and well-being. And we're back. Uh, I don't know if you recognize this voice, but uh, the last time you heard me, I wasn't so uh, good sounding. I was really bad, you could say. <laughs> okay, I can hear Adrian laughing. What's so funny? It's you. You're funny. It's me. <laughs> so it seems like, uh, among other things, I got resurrected on this show. So we better get uh, rolling. Sorry, I'm sorry for for not including you uh, on the Nutrition Heretic podcast previously uh, for the last couple of months because I have been running around like a chicken without a head, uh, just trying to get through the holidays, trying to I, I, I trying to just keep my my head afloat. And then I ha- my husband was down from San Francisco for like six weeks, so you know that just kept me distracted and you know d- trying to trying to uh, keep up with life. But you know my pet peeves, don't you? Oh, yeah. And you know that I have this pet peeve that in in the United States, I can buy a gun legally, but I cannot buy milk Mm -hmm. without going to jail. 
And that, yeah. when I say milk, I mean real milk, not the swill <laughs> from the pus and blood infected stuff that's on the regular supermarket shelves. Yeah. I'm talking about real milk from a real farm. This is Bruh. an increasing problem in this country, and a lot of people are pretty much fed up with it. Uh, as you remember, we had Charlotte Smith on the show, and she's with the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund. She recommended that we speak with our today's guest heretic, who is Peter Kennedy. He's also a Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund, and he is an attorney for them. Peter, welcome to the show. Glad to be here, Adrian. Hi, Nicola. Thank you so much for, for being on the show, because uh, as I've stated before, when people get on this track, you know, they want to improve their health. Usually the first thing they do is they cut out meat and dairy because they think that those are the devil. But then, you know, after a couple of years, they're like, well, you know, I, I'm, my body needs it. I need to stop cleansing and I need to start building. And they're looking for options. And one of those things, one of the entry foods, I like to call it, is dairy. Many farmers, and it's not just limited to dairy, uh, but uh, that, that is the, the big area, which is raw milk, where farmers are continually being raided and uh, their families held at gunpoint, their, their herds being shot, and um, they are, they're basically driven out of business by the U.S. government. Talk to us that about that. I mean, what, what do you think, Peter, what do you think the founding fathers of this country would, would have done differently? Well, with regards to the Constitution or whatever bill they would have had to pass, if they knew that food would be under attack 200 years ago. Well, that's later. a good point you bring up, Adrian, because I've heard a number of people say the reason uh, the Founding Fathers didn't bring anything up about a, a right to the food of your choice was that it was just assumed at that time. Uh, back then, as far as I know, there were some aspects of food production and sales that were regulated, but for just going out to the local farm, uh, purchasing uh, raw milk, best I can tell, that that kind of activity was hardly regulated at all. But just as the years have uh, gone on, I mean, there was a time in this country a hundred years ago where you had these swill dairies, a number of people were getting um, sick, uh, from uh, uh, raw milk uh, that was produced in very unsanitary conditions. But I think, you know, since then, there's been the advent of refrigeration, just stainless steel uh, uh, bulk tanks, uh, that kind of thing, where that's long in the past. And just a lot of these public health people are just carry on like it, like it isn't in the past. But it's uh, milk's an unusual food because it's the only food I know of that's actually banned in uh, interstate commerce. Uh, FDA issued a regulation banning it uh, 30 years ago. So what that does is it affects uh, the state laws. In most foods, the, the laws are pretty uniform. If, like in meat, uh, poultry, the um, state governments have to, at a minimum, adhere to certain uh, uh, federal standards that are spelled out in the Federal Meat Inspection Act, the Federal Poultry Products Act, but with milk, uh, it's basically up to the states. So you have some states where maybe you can um, sell up to 100 gallons a month. You have some states where goat milk is legal, but not uh, cow milk. Uh, you have a couple of states where you can only purchase milk with a note from a doctor. You have um, states where it's legal in retail stores, states where it's just legal on the farm. 
states where the sale is illegal, but it could be legal through what's known as a herd share arrangement, where someone purchases an ownership interest in a dairy animal or herd of dairy animals, and as a result of that interest, uh, can get uh, milk. And then you have other states where it's only um, uh, legal as uh, pet milk. What's happened is, in spite of this ban, I, I think there's legal access through either statute regulation or court decision or just departmental policy. And, you know, they made a decision not to in, enforce against it where any law prohibiting raw milk sales, where there's, I'd say there's legal access in over 40 states right now. So eventually this federal ban isn't going to mean all that much if it's legal in every uh, uh, state anyway. And we're actually, we worked with Ron Paul's office, gosh, I get this something like nine years ago on introducing a, a bill that would get rid of the interstate ban. I mean, he's no longer in Congress now, but he's got a great uh, successor on this issue, uh, Thomas Massey out of Kentucky, who was introduced. Okay. Yeah, two different bills. One that would, he introduced them last session. From what I understand, he's going to reintroduce them this section. One would completely get rid of the interstate ban. One would at least modify it where you could ship it from one state where it was legal to another state where it was legal. But don't know when it's going to happen, but I think uh, eventually the ban will be no more. Wow. And when you say the, okay, so that's just the ban for interstate. Yeah, interstate. What do you, right. What what, do you, what about, I mean, I live in Hawaii. I can't get to the next state. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so, and, and it's illegal. Well, I, I know there's been a, a raw milk bill introduced in Hawaii uh, the last few sessions, and I think there's going to be another one introduced uh, this session. So, I mean, it, it's available. There's some of these herd share programs out there. I don't know if there are a lot, but I mean, based on what I hear from Hawaii, it, yeah, something has a, a chance of passing, I think, the next couple of sessions. And as you know, I mean, why not? Because there's hardly any dairy industry out there, right? As, as far as I can tell, there's only one grade A dairy in the whole state. So yeah, uh, yeah, that that would be the Meadow Gold, um, right? I, I believe that's. And yeah, their their dairy is quite scary. I mean, besides the fact that it's ultra pasteurized, homogenized, uh, they put so many fillers in it. Right. I can't. Like, I, I don't even know how they call it milk. No, no. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, just ultra, ultra pasteurized milk is like sludge. And then just a lot of this pasteurized milk is like watered down chalk. So, oh, don't even get me started on that stuff. I, when I found out how it was made, I mean, I, I already wasn't drinking it, but when I found out uh, how it was made, I've been telling all my friends who are like, oh, I can only drink the, the skim stuff. And I'm like, you know what's in there? <laughs> so, well, yeah. Um, but yeah, and, and you would think. Yeah, that's actually something the dairy industry has been very good at is encouraging the consumption of skim milk, low fat milk, where the, the nutrients are in the fat. But in the meantime, they get to take that cream, uh, make another product out of it and get paid twice instead of once. Right, so. exactly. And uh, what, what, one thing that I always tell people, you know, because they're they're on these clean diets, and and so they want the the low fat and the skim milk, and then I tell them that it's you know the the expired milk, the infected milk, and all these other undesirable forms of milk that have been desiccated and then added to it. Considering that the that the leg the FDA is trying to stand on is one of safety, yeah, you know, it's so contradictory. 
uh, you know, not only because of the thing I said about having a gun, uh, but also because because they're putting the rejects in that skim milk. Yeah, when you look at some of the things FDA has legalized, like aspartame, uh, high, high fructose corn syrup, just MSG, it, yeah, it just doesn't make any sense at all. It's just driven uh, by industry. Right, yeah. right, yeah. Our organization, I think there are really two food systems. There's the industrial food system and the local food system. And really more than any other food, uh, raw uh, milk is the gateway to both systems. If you, right. go, if you go to a supermarket, you know, you, you go to get initially to get the perishable items of which uh, milk is one. When you're in the supermarket, you'll buy, uh, you'll buy other foods, other products there. And just the same principle we found holds true more often than not uh, with a farm. It's they'll go there to get uh, raw milk. And when they're there, they might buy meat, poultry, eggs, produce. But raw milk... Uh, a good bit of the time is what gets uh, the customer on the farm in the first place. So Right, right, exactly. You know, these raw milk bans are, are just any competitive regulations disguised as health regulations. I mean, people can get sick drinking raw milk. It's happened. They get sick um, on any food if it's improperly produced or improperly handled. Right. And, and I think so many of our more recent uh food scares first of all they're they're covering entire regions of the country uh you know california the northeast what have you and many of those came through vegetable products uh, the the vast majority came from vegetable products occasionally you hear like a ground beef one uh or maybe a chicken there was the chicken thing in california with uh, uh foster farms but for the most part i mean they, they've tried to incriminate raw milk uh, several times, but many of these out, so-called outbreaks didn't even consist of everyone consuming raw milk. Well, it, it's interesting because we've had a number of calls over the years on foodborne illness. Foodborne illnesses blame raw milk, but what we'll get a lot is just where there's one illness, and that's not officially a, a foodborne illness, and they're still trying to pin it raw on raw milk. And number one, they they wouldn't do that on any uh, other food. I don't think. Exactly. And then the second thing is, you know, when you're sick and uh, you have to fill out, I guess, these intake sheets, if you're going to a doctor or something like that, and they ask you about all these um, different products you've consumed. And from what we've seen, what happens again and again, as soon as uh, the sick individual puts down on the, the intake sheet that he, uh, he or she's consumed raw milk, that's the investigation ends right there. I mean, they don't. Yeah. Any other uh, possibilities? They just uh, zero in on that. And on these cases where there are one, two illnesses, things like that, and they blame raw milk, just from what we've seen, far more often than not, uh, raw milk had nothing to do with the illness. Right, right. And I think there's, I think there are a number of consumers who kind of straddle the line. So they want to do more back to the farm. They want to source their food locally. But there's that nagging voice. It might be the mother-in-law or whomever saying, oh, it's that milk, you know. So so those people might also be like, well, I don't know. I had some raw milk because, you know, otherwise I would just say milk, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, if you, you know, I, I would be filling out the form. Yeah, I had some milk. I had, you know, green peas, whatever. Well, yeah, a lot of it initially is just breaking down the walls in your mind. I mean, because you just hear so much of this any raw milk uh, propaganda from the 
from the public health departments. But what we've seen is um, uh, you just get a lot of people who have health issues and they um, raw milk is part of their protocol to recovery. So they're desperate enough right. where they, yeah, they kind of put all the, the rhetoric against it aside and, and try it. Not in every case, but in many cases, it, it does help them. You know, I mean, one example I can I can give you is um, just lactose intolerance is a big problem in uh, this country. And we commissioned this polling firm to, um, yeah, just survey number of people, find out uh, how many um, uh, people they estimated were uh, lactose intolerant. And it came to something like 29 million. And just aside from that, we have uh, this retired uh, MD who's our uh, raw milk expert. And he uh, did a poll of his own. He commissioned, like, surveyed about, I think it was around 1,500 raw milk drinkers in the Midwest. And one of the questions on the, his survey was, have you ever been diagnosed with a healthcare professional, uh, you know, as having lactose intolerance? You know, there are a couple hundred, I think, or as well over 100 anyway, that, that said uh, they had. And out of that number... 80, I think it was something like 82% of them said they could drink raw milk without a problem. Right. Conventional milk is just a highly problematic food, highly allergenic. And I mean, it's showing in the bottom line. They're just losing market share every year. I think uh, about 50 years ago or so, there are something like five, 600,000 uh, dairies in the country. Um, today, it's right around 50. And that figure I saw was a few mm. years ago. So it might be lower than that. So, so about how many family farms, not just raw milk farms, but family farms in general are going out of business every year? Well, I can give you an example. I mean, the, the, the state that has more raw milk dairies is um, Wisconsin. And, right. you know, raw milk is very, yeah, Wisconsin has raw milk dairies by far than any other state, I think. And um, raw milk is legal there, but in a very limited way. Yeah, mm -hmm. the farmers really can't make a living uh, selling it for the most part. And I think it was a little over 20 years ago, they had close to 30,000 dairy farms. And now, from what I understand, they're under 10,000. So it's just the conventional milk system is just complex enough so these farmers can't figure out, quite figure out how they're getting Right. But, um, uh, if you're a small farm, you need, and you're still in it, you need to get out of it. And there, there are three ways I see that they can get out of it. Number one, they can get their own bottling and pasteurization equipment, but that's a, a big capital investment. Second, they could just start making value-added uh, products, yogurt, you know, butter, things like that. Again, that's a big investment. Uh, the third way, which is not nearly as big an investment is just to be able to sell raw milk uh, direct to the consumer instead of um, selling it to uh, the co-op. I mean, what, what the co-op might pay you a buck 50 for if you're not organic, uh, you might get six bucks for selling direct to the consumer. In some areas of the country, you could probably get a good bit more. Right. Uh, what I'm wondering is if you could describe for us what some of the, the raids on these farms look like okay well you know what's like people think like oh well you know they should be stopped whatever but but 
you know, what, what kind of gear, well, is, <laughs> you know, which, which departments are going into these farms, first of all, and, you know, have jurisdiction in these different states. And, uh, you know, what, what are they doing? And again, I'm comparing this to cocaine uh, yeah. <laughs> possession or something like that. You know, how, how does this well, look when they go I in? I mean, what often happens is in, you know, it just starts as a routine um, inspection uh, the inspector will go in, say, of a conventional dairy. I mean, we have a member in um, Michigan uh, where these herd share agreements are legal, just with a caveat being that only fluid raw milk can be distributed uh, to someone who has an ownership interest or ownership rights in uh, the cows on the farm. You know, butter, cream, none of that can be distributed. And, and what happened was, um, yeah, just legally, that distinction, I think, is made to... Uh, protect the dairy industry because the value-added products are really where the money are. But at the same time, if you say that this is the uh, shareholders or leaseholders milk, well, why can't they um, retain someone to have that milk made into another dairy product? Because what you're saying is it's their property when it's milk, but all of a sudden when it becomes butter, that's the state's property or, or just a, it's an illegal transaction, which doesn't make any sense for from a property rights standpoint but anyway what right. um happened was um this guy in michigan every time he gets inspected as a grade a dairy twice a year and pretty close to every time he goes uh the inspector comes up in there they go in this one room where which is just reserved mainly for um of these people that have leased cows that are actually separate from his grade a herd and just get those pro uh, the milk from those cows, which they have the ownership rights in, made into another product. And I think this has happened like three or four times now. They will go uh, into this room that's only the, you know, it's it's leased out to these leaseholders of the cows. It's not part of the grade, oper grade A operation. They'll take product every time. And what happened after a while was the uh, Department of Agriculture uh, went to court, got an injunction, just uh, prohibiting uh, this farmer from uh, violating the uh, uh, Michigan food or, food and dairy laws. And what happened was they came back after the injunction was in place, found more of these products and filed a, a court action against, uh, filed a petition with a court to have this farmer held in contempt. The uh, court, you know, initially was hearing this testimony from the department's attorney that this guy was violating the grade A dairy laws, you can't do this and this. But the interesting part about it was that one of his leaseholders intervened as a uh, party because he was getting cream made and it was being taken every time uh, in these uh, raids or uh, seizures. And because this guy was in there, all of a sudden, the focus of the court turned to, okay, well, let's not look at whether it's a violation of the grade A dairy law so much, but let's start concentrating more on whether it's a violation of the leaseholder's property rights. And so they mm. yeah, had a hearing on this contempt of court action in October and last month, uh, the judge ruled that the, the farmer was not in contempt of court. And the interesting thing about it was that the day the right. farmer found out about it, he was talking to his attorney. And while he was talking, he was getting raided again because it was, uh, it was oh, semi-annual inspection date. And they, um, they cleaned out the, this refrigerator of all the butter and cream or whatever other products there were. Yeah, in, in uh, this uh, leaseholder room. 
you know, as it turns out, the inspectors weren't aware of the court decision. Hopefully that'll be the end of it, but you never know. Right. So when you say they they cleaned out these value-added products, what kind of monetary amounts are we looking at here? Um, it depends. I mean, sometimes it can be in the hundreds of dollars, sometimes be over a thousand. I mean, there was, you know, thankfully you don't get as many of these raids, but there was one about 10 years ago where they, you know, they not only raided the the farm where raw milk was kept, but they pulled the um, farmer's truck over on the highway. And I think they wound up taking like $7,000 worth of product. And it's just a total waste of good food. They usually wind up dumping it. Not to mention the financial loss. Right, the financial loss for these farmers who you know already are probably not... Uh, Broke. Yeah, exactly. They're not meeting the poverty line many times. What I was going to say is, um, I remember the, the case of Mark Holt in Pennsylvania. Right. Yeah, that... Or Nolt, sorry. Mark Holt. <laughs> Nolt is... Right. And... Uh, yeah, and that was uh, that was particularly. He's probably the the most famous Amishman in the country now. Uh, but um, yeah, they they handcuffed him in front of his kids. He had like what ten, twelve kids, and uh, I want to say what I I was told at one point, and maybe this was a collective because they've they've gone in numerous times that they've taken like well into five figures uh, worth of well, dairy for this man. Yeah, I, I definitely think uh, that's accurate, and they've. You know, I think tried to fine him a bunch of money and there still might be outstanding fines against him. I mean, I have no idea. I, I, he had so many different cases at one time. Trying to unravel them is it's pretty complex. Yeah, it, it's difficult to uh, just un, try and figure out everything he had going on with the state of Pennsylvania at one time. But uh, bottom line is, I, I think they've left him alone uh, for a number of years now and wisely so. Hopefully, he's still uh, feeding uh, his community. Right. And uh, just for people who don't know, Land O'Lakes, the butter people, are huge in Pennsylvania. Uh, and you see their signs all over uh, the dairies, you know, the farms that uh, give, uh, sell them their, their milk. Uh, you know, throughout Pennsylvania, you see this. And uh, I know that another farmer that I was uh, purchasing from was was uh, dealing with the state as well, had them, uh, yeah, just searching his property constantly uh, for what was there. And, and it's people think that the Amish maybe kind of get a pass for this because they do have very different ways of living. Uh, but no, not necessarily. I mean, the, you know, most of these people don't go beyond fourth grade education, and they are being treated like common criminals. It's 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 it, it reminds me of, of I always make these TV references, but Boardwalk Empire, you know, in Prohibition and sale of alcohol. Well, that, yeah, and that that's a good uh, comparison, Adrian. I mean, Prohibition is a dismal failure, and I think. Um, uh, just this interstate raw milk ban is too. Just to me, the sign of a bad law is one that otherwise law-abiding citizens violate with regularity, and that's what you get with raw milk. I, I mean, I just that law is so strict that I'd that say technically there might be thousands of people each week in this country that violate it. Most of them being consumers. Yeah, we actually uh, filed a uh, lawsuit challenging the interstate ban about half a dozen uh, years ago. We got some very uh, interesting things out of the, the lawsuit. When FDA 
uh, responded to our uh, complaint. You know, just our complaint basically said the law was unconstitutional. The their views on um, just freedom of food choice uh, became a matter of a public record. And one of the things they said in their reply to our complaint was that there is no absolute right to consumer feed uh, children any particular food. And then they also made a, a claim where they basically said that uh, we don't have a fundamental right to our own f- physical and bodily health. Wow. So that woke a lot of people up. Yeah, as to what uh, uh, the agency's views on a fundamental importance uh, to all of us. Right. So, yeah. And I think I think you know, most of us, you know, whether or not we even believe in God, would think that that's kind of a God-given right to be healthy and eat food. <laughs> uh, yeah, very basic. But it, uh, you know, they're basically saying if that they want to give you a vaccination. Uh, and you don't want to uh, get the vaccination, that's too bad. I, I mean, it, it just, yeah, because this is more about just food here. It, it gets to the, the question of who has uh, the right to determine uh, what, you, what we put in our bodies. Is it us or is it the government? And FDA made their views pretty clear. Um, but that was one thing that, yeah, and it's, it's out there now. It's, it's on, I mean, people suspected that long before uh, our case, but it, it's on the public record now, and I don't, I don't think they've changed uh, their views at all. Uh, the last, um, well, that was one aspect of the case, and another aspect of uh, the case was that the FDA just said, and uh, again, the court documents that they weren't uh, going to enforce the law against individuals who cross state lines to pick up uh, uh, raw milk. I mean, if it's really that dangerous a product, why wouldn't you try and enforce it? And yeah, there are all kinds of individuals who go across state lines. There are all kinds of groups that go across state lines. But it, to me, it's just making a statement like that is at least somewhat of an admission about the weakness of the law. And then finally, the yeah, the judge um, hearing the case ultimately dismissed the case. He said we didn't have standing. I mean, they're really FDA really hadn't taken an enforcement action against any of our plaintiffs. One of our plaintiffs was subject to a state enforcement action, but. Um, when the judge dismissed the case, he said something to the effect that the, this law was in a state. The word he used was uh, desuetude, and I'd never heard of that word before. But it, you know, I think the basic meaning of it uh, is uh, not worth a flip. And that's he, he just pointed out that yeah, yeah, this really hadn't been enforced at all. I mean, since we've been in existence, we've seen it enforced once, so. I mean, why bother challenging it when FDA isn't enforcing it? Right. So still, though, I mean, we do continue to challenge it. It's just there's always the threat of some kind of enforcement. But um, it, it's it's just a bad law in a number of respects. I mean, one of the unusual things about the law was that um, Congress had no involvement in this ban becoming law. I mean, it was based on a uh, there was a court decision where uh, the judge ordered FDA to write issue a regulation uh, banning raw milk and interstate commerce. FDA um, uh, issued the regulation. There is no, there is no input uh, from Congress at all. A sidelight to that is we, we currently have a uh, petition with FDA to lift uh, the, the interstate ban on uh, raw butter. And, you know, we're a co-petitioner along with Organic Pastures Dairy out of California, which is the lo- largest raw milk 
dairy in the country. And one of the things we discovered in doing the research on this was the um, FDA has power to uh, just issue what is called standards of identity for different foods. Like with milk, uh, the FDA standard of identity is it has to be pasteurized, it has to be at least three and a quarter percent milk fat and so on. But there are exceptions to FDA having this power to issue standard of identity regulations. And one of them is um, uh, butter. Uh, just the Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act specifically says that FDA cannot issue a, a standard of identity for butter. And actually, Congress has, uh, through, a through a definition, where they basically say it can be raw or it can be pasteurized. So in issuing this, this blanket interstate ban on all dairy products, FDA is, um, to me, is basically violated um, or contravened this uh, congressional uh, statute on raw butter being able to be either uh, pasteurized or unpasteurized. Interesting, interesting. Well, I mean, butter, excuse me. Right, and, and we know that, uh, that the soft cheeses, uh, particularly the ones coming from Europe, those aren't allowed to be raw. We used to be able to get raw milk brie and camembert and things like that. Yeah, well, that brings up another interesting aspect of this, Adrian, is that there's a federal regulation that says raw cheese has to be aged at least 60 days before it can be sold. And with a, a cheese like camembert, my understanding is that in France, its shelf life expires at uh, the 57th day um, after the 57th day. So, yeah, technically you can't, yeah, you can't even sell it in um, uh, this country. But it, it, again, it's another ban. I mean, different cheeses have different aging requirements. So it, it, it's just a, um, this blanket 60 day aging requirement just seems like it was a, um, a political uh, solution to something, you know, dispute over what should be and what shouldn't be uh, pasteurized among cheeses. And it just, from a scientific standpoint, doesn't make any sense. Right. And uh, I'm glad that you said scientific standpoint, because people who do not understand food, who are not in the sciences will say, well, the science says, but the science doesn't say that, uh, especially, and you can't trust, that's the other thing, you can't trust science when it comes from the people who gain, who stand to gain from it. You know, for, so in other words, uh, right. science can be faked, you know, they can, they can just slap whatever conclusion they want on something and say it's science and uh you know 75 percent of the population is going to swallow that yeah especially when it's uh, funded by yeah. uh, the corporations oh yeah for sure yeah it's heavily politicized I, I mean to give you an example of that there have been these i guess peer review studies where these conventional dairies have had uh, samples taken out of their bulk tanks and you know, could be um, thousand cow, five thousand cow dairies, and just these peer reviewers said there was a pretty high positive uh, a pathogen rate out of uh, the samples taken, and that that was produced for pasteurization that they tested it wasn't milk that was produced for direct human consumption, mm -hmm. and the dairy industry refuses to make a, a distinction between the two, but uh, we have records of, you know, a, a number of different states that do require pathogen testing and the rate for p 
positive pathogen testing among with raw milk that's produced for direct consumption is far lower uh, than the rate was with raw milk produced for pasteurization. So it, it's just another example of the science getting uh, politicized. I mean, the peer-reviewed journals are on part of this raw raw dairy ban for the most part. So just it would probably be tough to publish the data, uh, at least in this point. I mean, there's some signs it could be things could be softening up a bit, but. Right. I, I always say that peer-reviewed journals just mean that the conclusion agrees with whoever's advertising facing the, the study that's being reported on. Oh, uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, at one time, I guess the tobacco companies were heavy advertisers in the Journal of the American Medical Association. So, absolutely. Yeah, you know how that goes. Right. Exactly. So, um, you know, it's just to let everybody out there know it's not, you know, don't just think, oh, it's a study. And the other thing, too, is that a lot of times when you particularly when you're looking online, uh, they don't make the entire study available, for example, on PubMed without a subscription. And many times I've seen when I've you know had uh, my medical journals and, and reading through the actual studies, what the studies report and the design of the study is often in complete opposition to the summary of said study. In other words, their summary does not always, you know, their conclusion and their summary does not always reflect the actual data that's in the study. And I found that as well when I went to school for nutrition, you know, we used standard dietetics books, which uh, would say, you know, they would talk about um, the vitamins or the, uh, you know, vitamins in a particular food or minerals in a particular food or fat content or, uh, you know, what the structure of a sugar molecule looks like. And then at the end, they would summarize it by telling you, well, you know, we said this, but there's these new, these, these new fake fats that are on, like, remember Alestra? You know, there's these new <laughs> fake fats that are on the market and these are much better for you. Right. You know, they, 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 under a microscope, yeah. they, they look like olive oil or what have you. Uh, but, uh, yeah, you should just eat this instead. So, you know, I'm very familiar. I'm painfully aware of the fact that, uh, the data is out there, but it's not necessarily the take home message given to the consumer or to the doctor for that matter. Yeah. Well, just as the saying goes, you have to follow the money. For sure. And for sure. You know, I, I, the, the dairy industry definitely has a stake in just uh, limiting access to raw milk. And I think in a lot of ways, the pharmaceutical industry does, too. Oh, for it, sure. It might be a little more indirect, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've had someone from the Weston Price Foundation on. Oh, I've, um, I've had Sally herself. Just, <laughs> well, there you go. Well, well they um, have gone to um, a number of, number of their conferences and. You just talk to people. Some of them have like a discredit raw milk for some a cure when they might have had Crohn's disease or something like that. They credit raw milk of being part of the reason they were cured. But more often than not, what you see um, uh, or what you get when you talk uh, to people there is that they, you know, a lot of them uh, don't go to the doctors. Yeah. But even more than that, uh, even more than that, they don't take medication. Yes. Yeah, in that respect, I mean, I definitely think raw milk is a threat to the pharmaceutical industry, which is about the most powerful lobby there is right now. Absolutely, it was it was totally handed over in the '80s, uh, and and then continued in the '90s. 
so yeah, I extremely aware of, of how insidious that, that industry is. That's the end of this week's episode of the podcast. Tune in next week when we find out what makes muffins so dangerous to the U.S. government, more secrets about food freedoms, and Peter's role working with the FTC-LDF, all coming up next week. Heretic Podcast is a production of Savor the Journey, LLC. Our audio editor is Nikola Popovich. Our podcast manager is Crystal McLean. And our operations manager is Michelle Med. I'm your host, Adrian Hugh, the Nutrition Heretic. You can find us at the new and improved nutritionheretic.com, where you can download the Nutrition Heretic's free shit list of seven health foods to avoid like the plague. You can also listen to previous episodes at nutritionheretic.com forward slash podcast. Be sure to like us on social media for updates. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash nutritionheretic and on Twitter at NutriHeretic. Contact us with show ideas, questions, or if you want to be a guest. And don't forget to rate our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher.